Let's go ahead and pick up here. Can someone start chapter 4 at verse 23 and just take us through the end of the chapter? It's pretty short. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill of various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Good. So, we have this coming out of chapter 4 into 5. So we'll see, before we get to the teaching ministry of chapter 5, well, there's a little bit of that. As we end out of chapter 4, the order of events, Jesus is baptized, right? Or sometimes with a Z. Then, Jesus begins to proclaim what? He begins to proclaim the gospel. And what's, what's, what's the line he, the tagline for the gospel proclamation that he picks up? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that line belonged to originally? John the Baptist. Good, so he has taken over the same um, sort of structural ministry from, from John the Baptist here. Okay. And then what does he do next? Calls the disciples. Calls the first four disciples. Good. So, baptized, and I mentioned on Sunday, that leaves kind of broader knowledge to him, probably just to, to Jesus and John. In between, after the baptism, John is arrested, which Matthew also notes, and it's kind of an important moment too, although it, because if, if you read here in chapter 4, Right. It says, now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. So there's that, there's that portion about beginning his ministry in Galilee and the importance there. Good morning. And the, the catalytic act for him going to Galilee to begin his ministry is the arrest of John the Baptist. Because if, John, if John's arrested, what can't he do anymore? Baptize. He can't baptize and he can't carry on his own ministry, really. It kind of puts a, puts a halt to that. So it's not until John the Baptist is arrested, that's when Jesus sort of takes over John's proclamation of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Calls these first four disciples. Again, it is unfamous Jesus at this point. Calling those first four. And then he's going to get into his ministry. So... At the end of chapter 4 there, what are some of the things that Jesus begins to do? Well, healing the sick of people and bringing them. Healing. Right? Very important. What else? Well, teaching and preaching. Teaching. Where is he teaching? In the synagogue. Ah. He begins his ministry of teaching within the synagogues, and I think at the end of last week, we got into that whole sort of introduction to Jesus as Pharisee. So, again, whether Jesus is a professed sort of member of a Pharisaic club is one thing. 
Bible's not clear on that. The Bible is pretty clear, though, that he, he carries on in the tradition of the Pharisees, right? So he's at least brought up in that same model of the faith. And so he goes into the synagogues and he teaches. One of the reasons maybe you can describe Jesus as having been sort of a, a known commodity could be, or at least sort of someone with some sort of credentialing as a, as a Pharisee or something like that, he teaches in the synagogue. So you could have discussions. Synagogue was word-based study, um, you, and you could, everyone could participate in some parts, but it's notable that he's given, sort, he's given the microphone, sort of. Um, now, whether some place is more accommodating to say, all right, whoever has mind and heart to expand on the scriptures, come on up, or whether it was, hey, we, this guy, we recognize him as already sort of a, a teacher, a rabbi, so come up, Jesus, and begin to teach. Um, now, one of the things is, John has been arrested, so mm -hmm. it may not be safe to be walking around the countryside picking up followers uh, at that point. It's okay to, to be a Jew. Well, so why was why was John arrested? Because he told Herod things that Herod didn't want to know. Yeah. yeah. He started to preach against Herod and his wife Herodias. We're not quite sure what Jesus is teaching in the synagogues at the start of his ministry, but perhaps it's not immediately sort of incendiary remarks. Yeah, be. Right? In fact, most of what John said was being received by the greater population. It was, it was that difference between trapping and, and genuine curiosity. They sent the people out from the, the temple. They sent the Pharisees and Sadducees out and the leaders out to John the Baptist because they were interested in what he was saying. The thing that gets John the Baptist tripped up is when he goes against sort of the state power, when he, when he preaches against the king specifically, King Herod. Jesus begins his teaching ministry, and I think you can make this assumption that maybe what he's saying is not all that different sounding. Maybe it's actually pretty received pretty received pretty well, right, in terms of, of the way he's teaching. So the teaching ministry within the synagogues, he heals. What are some of the other acts that he does? And you, we can put healing and some of these other things in the signs and wonders category. What else is he doing? Oh, he puts out demons. Yep, the casting out of demons. Seizures. Casting out of demons. And I think I had mentioned, maybe maybe in this group last week or maybe with, with the folks on Sunday, you can't really disentangle various illnesses, physical illness, mental illness, from sin and even demonic possession. They would have they would have drawn a different distinction between demonic and, and just plain sin is why this is happening to you. But the ways that we maybe now think about the physical and sinful nature not exactly being uh, one and one, although we do still sort of generally subscribe within Christianity to an idea that everything that's broken in the world is broken because of sin. So that doesn't mean someone gets cancer, it's because they did something bad, but it means obviously any disease or illness or just something that is bad for us is a greater reflection of this broken creation, which we broadly call sin.
So good, casting out of demons, healings, these are the signs and wonders. Anything else specifically? Where does he go? Where, where is this all taking place? Mm-hmm. And other parts too, I have listed here. Spread to Syria, but he did, it doesn't say he went to Syria. Right. Right. So his fame is. Not necessarily. His stories and fame are spreading north. They mention it first, and then how does it end finally? Where do the? What's our final verse here? Twenty-five. <coughs> Decropolis, Jerusalem, Judea. Yep. So this, this is the other part of it. So his fame spreads all the way up through Syria, but he starts to get these, and this is the the, the point I'm belaboring here. Um, large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decropolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So he's become what? Famous. famous, regional, regionally famous, right? So it doesn't give us an exact, Matthew doesn't give us a timeline for this, um, but it's clearly more than, it's more than a day, right? <laughs> I mean, there's clearly some, it's have to take some, time. some work at hand. There's already a, a distinction that is being laid between two groups. So how many people are following Jesus? Does it say here? Well, it implies it's large, it says large crowds. Big, big, great crowds, right? And we don't exactly know how many that is. Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan follows him. Representing all sorts of areas from, um, from, the, from the Holy Land there and beyond. So large crowds, so we got big crowds. And what category do the first four fall in? Those first four, the sets of brothers at the seashore. The disciples. They're disciples. So this is disciples, apostles, whatever we want to designate them as. Talks about disciples here. Let's put them as, oh, what's that? All disciples, all disciples are followers, but not all followers are disciples. So Jesus is famous. There's a lot of people following him around. He's doing these great things. But you have this much larger group of people that are just interested in Jesus. What's the word disciple mean? Anyone know that one? Student. Oh, it is student. Student. So there's the difference. If you're in the big crowd, you're following behind, you're interested. If you're a disciple, you are a student. And you're studying and you're studying, and if you're a disciple, you study under a teacher, and that Aramaic Hebrew word for teacher is? Rabbi. Rabbi Rabuni, yeah. So these are the folks that have a different relationship with him than just the broader crowds. Now we'll jump into chapter 5, which is going to be all teaching, but something... All right, can someone read uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2? Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, 
Okay, so we are going to get into chapter 5, which is famously called Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mountain. Okay, so you have Jesus. Portly Jesus here, because I had to get the day up. Right? He's got a whole big crowd of people. He sees the crowd. What does he do when he sees the crowd? He goes up on the mountains. What does that offer him? Gets him up above them or whatever. Gets him up above them, but it also is adding physical and metaphor, well, more than metaphoric. Um, Moses came down from the mountain. It's adding space. Okay, so let's 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 revert back to that real quick. If we remember from Old Testament, what are mountains and what happens on mountains? Miracles. Mm, miracles, yes, but God speaks. God stuff. God. Ooh, I like that. God speaks to you on mountains, right? That's one of the things. That mountains are holy places. Mountains are also separated places. Not everyone, for reasons like Moses, is the only one allowed to go up. Or for physical reasons or just effort reasons, not everyone can go up the mountain. Jesus is going to go up the mountain. Arduous, hard, right? Don't, don't forget that point of it. So it's creating separation between him and the large crowd. So note where it says Jesus sees the crowd, then goes up the mountain. He's distancing himself from the crowd. This is not the first time by any stretch that Matthew or the other Gospels, Jesus is going to want separation from the larger crowd. Because why are they why are they following him? To be healed. So, yeah, maybe because of what they want. Maybe they're interested in the teaching, but they also want the signs and the wonders and all that kind of stuff. And they're interested in his fame. He sees the crowd. He goes up the mountain to create separation. And who comes? His disciples. So, who's hearing the Sermon on the Mount? The disciples. Right. Call that 12 or so, although it's not exactly mentioned how many disciples at this point. The Sermon on the Mount is not necessarily a broad public teaching event, it's for his students. Because what was that assumption that we had about his teaching that he was doing more broadly in the synagogues? And his preaching to this point? Uh, that he was approved of by the established. It's probably a little bit more normal and publicly acceptable. Right? Now Jesus is creating this space. He sees the crowds, he's going up, and only his disciples follow him. Then he begins to teach them, meaning who? His disciples, not everyone. All right. So if this is instruction and teaching for the disciples, we're going to see just coming up here why it's maybe at first sort of private teaching. All right. So let's go ahead and can someone read the blessings, the Beatitudes 3 through 11, verses 3 through 11. Mary, it's your turn. All right. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. How far did you want me to go? Through 11. Uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and offer all kinds of evil against you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Mm-hmm. Good. Wait. Oh, sorry. Through 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so man per, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Good. All right. So this is the fame beatitudes, and this is actually the, the gospel lesson for this upcoming Sunday. So, poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn will be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth. The, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. The merciful will find mercy. The peacemakers are the sons or children of God. Or excuse me, which one's this? The pure of heart will see God. The peacemakers are the sons and daughters of God. And if you're persecuted for righteousness sake, you get the kingdom of heaven. And if you suffer evil to you because of me, rejoice. And preceding all this is the descriptor. Blessed or blessed? It's like blessed. It sounds more churchy. Blessed is fine too. Um, so we're going to save comparing this to this other time it's found in the Gospels in Luke. Let's talk about these really quick. What does blessed mean? Anyone know? We say it a lot. <laughs> we know that Jesus says it here. What's it mean? God with you? Not quite. Let me see if I can give you the closest Greek translation. I don't know if that's spelled right. To be blessed is to be happified divinely. It's sort of this good or To be gooded by God. I know neither of those are great English, but that's kind of what it means. It's a, it's a happiness or a happy state or to have goodness through God in some sort of divine way. That's what the, the Greek word that's translated as blessed means. You could, although it's not as often, you could even just use the word to say that you've been made good or you've been made happy or that happiness is with you or goodness is with you. But if you're talking in a understanding of God's prevalence in the world, that will ultimately stem from divine God. So pleasing God or God being pleased with you can lead to you being blessed, happy, or in a state of goodness. 
Here's where I said it's really interesting that this is not the teaching broadly for the public yet. This is just for the disciples. What do you think about being poor in spirit? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Don't Jesify it in your mind. Is it, is it a good thing or a bad thing to be poor it in spirit? It sounds bad. It sounds bad. Is it a good thing or a bad thing to mourn? Bad. Bad. How about to be meek? Bad. How about to be persecuted for righteousness? Real bad. Yeah. If Or how about, most notably, and Jesus sort of builds up to this, how about to have evil done to you? Super okay. bad. Super bad, right? <laughs> Thank you, Mary. That's a good way to put it. Super bad by the end. But here Jesus is saying... Blessed are people in these states. What does that sound like? How do, we, how do you take that? The kingdom of heaven is very different from the kingdom of earth. Okay, I like that. The kingdom of heaven is very different than the kingdom of earth. Good. What does it say to you? Now, take off the... Take off the decades of formation as, as Christians and people of God's word. You're following Jesus. You're a student of Jesus. He's called you up to the mountain, and he tells you, blessed are those who mourn. How does that strike you? Or blessed are, are those who, or when you're persecuted, or when evil's done to you. It's not going to be too good to follow him. Maybe. <laughs> that's, letting you, that's letting you in on some knowledge right away, right? To be a follower of Jesus is, is something that can potentially cause ill or harm to you. In fact, maybe it's a good thing when it does. Rejoice and be happy, right? Someone's tearing you limb from limb for confessing God. Oh, happy day. It sounds odd. This, is, this does... This is just... Flipping common sense upside down. And, it, and they would have heard it like that. And if you're hearing this for the first time and you're coming from a standard view of the world, and I would say a worldview that most of us are getting close to again, um, as, as, you know, things become maybe more secularized, I don't want to be poor in spirit. I don't want more. I don't want to be meek. I want something better than that. You know, Jesus is saying, no, no. These people that are in these states are actually those who are being made good and happy by God. Right? All of them come with, or most of them, sort of except for the last one, come with a, I don't want to call it a reward, let's call it a happy consequence. If you are poor in spirit, part of what makes you blessed is that yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you mourn, part of what makes you blessed is that you will be comforted. If you are meek, part of what makes you blessed is that you will inherit the earth. So these are prescriptive and descriptive sorts of things. Because um, you might not want to be meek, but good news for you that are. Ultimately, you will inherit the kingdom of God. So it's, 
it's drawing this, it's teasing out the state of things now, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of earth being different, and the state of things now versus what they will be. I mentioned this, this idea of descriptive and prescriptive. So by, and when we read scripture, we often break things down to these terms. If it's descriptive, it's describing something as it was. If it's prescriptive, it's not only describing something as it was, but it's saying about how something will continue to be or what you should do. I think the Beatitudes kind of fall into both because those who are still meek still have the promise of inheriting. Those who are poor in spirit still have the promise of the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew, or excuse me, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus lays out this sort of reverse common sense about who can be considered blessed. If you would have asked someone, maybe even the disciples before they went on the mountain, who is blessed? The person who is meek or the person who is strong? You would say strong. Strong, because what are signs of blessing? In a common sense sort of way. What are the ways that God, we, and we traffic in this too. What are our blessings from God that we talk about? Wealth. Wealth and health, health and, and, yeah, family members doing well and, and all these things. Jesus really does a 180 here in, in making us reconsider and rethink what it means to be truly blessed by God. What happens here in Matthew, though, is we get a singular direction for these things. So what does it say about those who are strong in Matthew's gospel, right here in the Beatitudes? Or what does it say about someone that isn't mourning or is, or is rich in spirit? Does it say anything? No. No. All right. So let's turn for comparison to the Sermon on the Plain. And that's going to be Luke 6. So this begins at 20, um, and let's see, a little bit before that. Now during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray. This is Jesus. He spent the night in prayer to God. He, when, when he came down, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom was named Peter, his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and blessed them all. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, so this is a little bit different for a couple reasons. The order that Luke has things occurring here is reversed. Where is Jesus before he gives the Sermon on the Plain? He's, on the He's already on the mountain, praying alone. So there's still that space and separation. Okay. Matthew's Gospel, 
focuses on, in a lot of ways, Jesus fulfilling prophecy. Luke's gospel and, his, and Matthew's gospel has been said to be more spiritual, and we'll see that in a second. Luke's gospel has said is said to be more Jesus concerned for not only your spiritual reality and future, but also your earthly nature and lot. Okay, Jesus is a little bit more of the people, and he's a lot more vocally concerned about those who are marginalized. There's that difference between the focus on Joseph and Matthew in the Christmas story from Matthew and the focus on Mary in the, in the story from Luke, right? So they have these different emphasis. Jesus starts on the mountain alone in prayer, but he comes down to the crowds. So that's not to say that Jesus was always with the crowds in Luke, but his teaching is going to be done from a different location. Mountains are holy and they're high and they're a little bit separate. That's why Jesus here in Luke goes up to pray there. So what then is a plain? Who can see you on the plain? Oh. Not everyone because you're just on the same level with them and so you get two people away and you can't see them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose. you're big and tall. I suppose, I suppose, but everyone can kind of be there. So the crowd's all there, including the disciple apostles, the 12 of them. Everyone's there. Jesus comes down. What does Jesus do first, before the sermon? He picks out certain ones. Okay, good. Then what next? He heals the people. Yes. He heals. He gives the people, in a sense, what they want. Right. Then, verse 20, then he looked up at his disciples and said, now, so, so note this difference, right? Jesus came down, calls his 12, heals people from all over the crowd, and then begins to speak. Who is the teaching for in Matthew's gospel? Who are the only ones that get to hear it in Matthew's gospel? The disciples. Now in Luke's gospel, who is the teaching for? Well, it's for the disciples. Correct. And then who get? But who gets to hear it? The crowd. Everyone. They're still there. So it's a slight difference, but I think a notable one. Right? Jesus is being a little bit more inclusive here in Luke's gospel. Let's get into what he teaches. It's going to sound familiar. We know he's got 12 disciples now. Yeah, there's the, it's numbered there. All right. So, let me read through this. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Is that the same? As he said in Matthew. The other was saying, be poor. And this is saying, you who are poor. It's more personalized. That's not the only difference. It's poor in spirit. Aha. Blessed are you who are poor in If I said, Mary, you're poor in spirit, what am I saying? And it's an insult that I don't have a positive attitude. You could see it as an insult, but you're also just impoverished in your in your spirit, in your whether you call that your connection to God or just your overall sort of generalized being. But that's we know what that means. Mary, if I said you're poor, what do I mean? Well, 
in earthly goods. Yeah. That sounds like. So it's 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 different. And if you think about that Matthew Luke divide, that difference makes sense. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, flipping back real quick again and thinking about who can hear this, right? So, Mary, you caught this, and this is very good. So verse 3 from chapter 5 of Matthew, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew, Jesus is teaching, and it is the anonymous third person, right? Bless or, yeah, third, plural or singular. Blessed are those people who are like this, right. who are the meek, who are those who mourn. Now he's down on the plain in Luke. The 12 are there and everyone else is there. So when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God, who is he talking to? Or who, who how would that be received differently than the Matthew version? It's more personal. Yeah, everyone that's poor in that crowd that can hear him also hears that, right? So it's addressing the people there in a sense more than Matthew's is. Matthew's in that way is more of a standard teaching. This one, in fact, is more of like the preaching. Okay, so that one's different. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be filled. Different or the same? Different because the other is hunger and thirst after righteousness. Mm. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. I'd say that one's probably the closest. That that's mourned and comforted. That's that's as close as we're gonna get, right? right? But poor, hungry, again, if I say you hunger and thirst for righteousness, and I say you just hunger, we know what that we can hear that difference. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. Different or exactly the same? Very similar. Very similar, but one difference. Who are you being persecuted for here in Luke's Gospel? On account of yeah. whom? Son of man. And who are you being persecuted for in Matthew's gospel? Son of God. Mm -hmm. Or for my sake, he doesn't... He Specific doesn't in Matthew, himself. right? Yes. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my, my account. account. On my account. And maybe that's that slight difference between this being more broadly because some of those in the crowd might not know that he's the son of man, but the message is still open to them. Once you like, once you in the crowd identify who the son of man is and you're persecuted for him, because they probably don't, they're not quite as tied in yet as the close followers of Jesus. Okay, now we switch very distinctively here. Matthew went one way with the teaching. Luke continues at 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, of you for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. All right, so that's the only comparison we're going to do with Luke here today. But Luke does what Matthew doesn't and fills in the other side of the equation. 
How do you hear it differently? Let's say you got to hear Jesus give both of these, as we kind of do within the Gospels, right? What do the what do the addition or the non-existence of the woes speak to you? Well, the bad things are always going to be there. Okay. Uh, and they'll appear like punishments to you, I guess, or by society standards, it will be punishment to you. And who are the woes for? Who are the warnings for? Uh, the establishment. Kind of, yeah. If you're full now and you're rich now, mm. it will not be like that for you in the kingdom of heaven. Now, one of the one of the again thinking about so Matthew sort of does the spiritualized 180. Luke does the earthly 180. The woe, in a sense, and you could look at this in light of the story of um, Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham and the rich man who couldn't drink the water. But if things will be changed to be, I think we can say equalized within the kingdom of heaven, here's kind of where the woe comes. Some are rich and some are poor, right? The poor are going to get theirs. The rich won't necessarily be made all the way poor, but everything gets evened out in the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God when it rains. How will the poor perceive this medium line? Going to it's a good day. Right? They just got better. How will the rich perceive it? Not so much. That they're losing if their concern and concentration is on their wealth. So if you're concerned about what you're losing, this will be your new reality that seems bad. But even if you're rich, and in Luke, this should start to play out in the here and now. Let's say it doesn't for whatever reason. Even if your concern, though, is... For the poor, how does this line strike you then? So if you're yeah, so it's that difference between if you are rich and your concern is rich. Once everything gets equaled out, you're going to think about how much you've lost. If you're concerned with God's righteousness, then maybe you'll be able to see the goodness therein. And especially because I don't think it's as I don't think it's as drastically different today, but if you're rich back then, or maybe through any point in history, where's where's kind of your wealth stemming from? Ultimately, trotting down on the poor, probably. It, yeah, and especially Luke and Jesus is pretty pretty committed to that idea. Um, if, if you get and maintain your level of wealth, it requires other people to, to not have it. And so if you're wedded to that system, woe to you, because things are going to look a lot different in the kingdom of God. So if you're only concerned about that. So let's flip back to Matthew. The Beatitudes are, of course, the biggest part of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at a couple 
of these other, let's move to, all right, I'm gonna read this portion and then can someone read 21 to 26? Starting at 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Two things here. Your righteousness needs to exceed the level of the scribes and the Pharisees. And this... <clears throat> this very explicit, I will not, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Why does Jesus need to say that? So that they know it's not a, it's not a military or a government mm. thing. No. No. The other things have been there as a result of what God has wanted you to do because he has a promise when you're doing to do these these things and organize yourself. Okay, but why would why when would you need to say I'm not abolishing the law or the prophets? When you're not leaving the resurrection. I mean, uh, uh, when you're not leaving, yeah, when you're not revolting against society. No. If what I'm saying or what I'm about to say would make people think that I am casting aside the law and the prophets, I sort of need to say I'm not doing that because his teaching is going to be different. It already has started to appear different. Those beatitudes that he starts with are sort of a flip of common sense, maybe even a flip of theological understanding about how people understand who's blessed and who's not. It's not, it's perceived as not good and not divinely good to be in those categories. Jesus is now saying, no, no, no. Those are the people that are blessed. He's already starting to monkey with the system, but he wants to make it clear he's not throwing the system over. He is what? What is his word here? I have not come to abolish, but... To fulfill. Fulfillment of the law, which can include growth in the law. Same system, but Jesus is going to reinterpret and expand in some places. So can someone read 21 through 26? You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Rah is answerable to the uh, seraphim. Hang on. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. Okay, start from there. Okay. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Rah, and then here it says it's an Arabic uh, term of contempt. Yes, I have I have insult in mind. Answerable to the Sahedrin. Okay. 
But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Okay. Therefore, if you are offering your gifts at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go reconcile with your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversaries who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, uh, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. All right. Good. Let us then move quickly into, can someone read 27 through 30? You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. All right. And finally, can someone read 31 through 32? It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. So we have these three teachings in succession here. Murder leaves you liable to judgment. That is the law. Jesus equates the same judgment for the murderer with someone who is what? Angry. Angry Ooh. with their brother or sister. Then this builds a little bit. So this is interesting. So this goes from one to the next. If you say this insulting, contemptuous thing, you will be liable to the Sanhedrin, the council judgment. If you but say you fool, you will be liable to what? The fires of hell. Okay. So there's an ordering to this. This insult is worse than saying you fool. Sometimes people are fools. Murder is judgment. To be angry with your brother or sister should render the same judgment. To insult should leave you liable before the council. To just say you fool will leave you liable to the fires of hell. So I'm just going to tell you here, this one is, is worse and this one is lesser. How does the punishment go? Backwards. It's backwards, right? Not only is it backwards, it is way beyond what is in the law. In the law, murder will render your judgment. In the law, to be angry with your brother or sister does not render the same judgment. Not, not by a long shot. 
To insult someone, even cruelly, or to simply just point out that someone is full, does not leave you before the council or to the fires of hell. This lesson here and this lesson here, I think, go pretty hand in hand. So, what about adultery? What is adultery? What's adultery, people? Um, <laughs> breaking the laws of marriage, breaking the bond of marriage. Specific. We're all adults here. Fornication. Thank you. You're having sex with someone that's not your wife. Right. Or your husband. Right. That's adultery. Right. Okay. That is, and that's understood to be adultery. That's what you're not supposed to do. What does Jesus say is equivalent to adultery? Just looking at another person. Ah, oh, with lust in your heart. Poor old Jimmy Carter. Great uh -huh. lesson from Jimmy Carter. <laughs> well, I, I used that the last time I preached on this. Um, okay. Here's what I like to point out. Not that everyone is perfect at this. Can you go through your life without committing adultery? Probably not. Really? Not by those. No, standards. no, not by this standard. Not by uh, this standard. Can you go through your life without cheating on your spouse? Yes. Yeah. It happens. It's in the realm of possibility. Well, again, some people do not fully keep this, but you can do this. Can you go through your entire life without murdering someone? Yes. Yes. Can you go? I always, I don't always know if women can answer this the same way. I'll tell you. Can you go through your entire life without having lustful thoughts through your eyes on another person that is not your spouse? Mm, no. I think men have a tougher time with this, but I think it applies pretty equally. No. Can you go your entire life without ever being angry with your brother or sister? <laughs> Definitely not. Can you go through your entire life without ever calling someone a fool? Nope. Probably not, unless you took a vow of silence. Okay, so I think Yeah, these, but if you think, you, if you think it and don't say it, it still is bad. So the law, previous to this teaching of Jesus, is something that can and, sh excuse me, should and can be kept. Should and can. The law, when Jesus begins to expand and fulfill on it, I think is something that should and can't be kept. Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. One of the parts of that Pharisaic movement is this deep concern, doesn't come from a bad place, of keeping the law and trying to fully keep the law. Jesus begins to introduce this very Christian idea Partly because we are so broken and partly because sin exists, you can't fully keep the law. This in and of itself is going to be a major shakeup to the overall understanding of law. This is part of the fulfillment, the fullness of the law, if it could be fulfilled, would produce what? So it not only is expanded, as Jesus says here, you're not only not supposed to murder, but you're not supposed to be angry. If there is no sin, no sin present, do people murder each other? No. Yeah. no. If there's no sin present, do people become angry with each other? No. No. 
So, tying it back then, the fullness of the law, if it could be kept completely, would take us to a state of something like the kingdom of heaven. The law as it's presented is not the kingdom of heaven. The law as it's presented. See that? There's that movement there. Because the law as it's presented doesn't create a completely untenable goal. It would be tough, and it's, it's hard and righteous work to keep the law as best you can, but to keep the fullness of the law would be the only way. To fulfill the law, and to fulfill as Jesus is using here, to fulfill the law's intent. What is the intent of the law? To get us to a place that's closer to the kingdom of heaven. But the expansion of the law into its fullness is something that we can't do. So to, if Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he can do it. He can, he can not only do these things, but he can bring the world into that sort of state too. Right? Whereas the law can't because we can't fully keep it, not in its ultimate fullness, which would be a, a place without sin. Um, I guess that's where it goes back to the story and the, the man says, I've kept the law. Exactly. Yeah, he's kept the law. Let's ask this question. This would have had a clear answer within the church until... Interestingly enough, for like the first 1,900 and some years of the church, there was pretty much universal agreement on this, all parts of the church. Is divorce sin? Now, Jesus still leaves this, this portion of, well, if there's, if there's adultery, then you can still justifiably write your wife this certificate and you can divorce her. That's in the law. And this is almost in some ways the first real change. And that's a word that's tough, that gets nuanced when you get into deep theology, because again, Jesus isn't abolishing the law, but he's fulfilling it. But in, in the law that's established in, in Jesus' time, you can, for whatever reason, go through this process of writing your wife the certificate of divorce, whether she's cheated on you or not, and then you're divorced. Okay. I bet that was Joseph. He had the... You know, he could have chosen to divorce her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, would Jesus' contemporaries have considered that form of divorce sin? No. No. Says in the law, right. It says in the law, you can do this. Again, Jesus expands to fulfill the law. Because what happens especially in first century, what happens if I divorce my wife um, who hasn't cheated on me? Remember, there's these inequities. Then she's considered unacceptable. Well, she's not unacceptable. She, she might be seen of lesser value. She might not be able to find another husband. I'm still a man in the society. I can still do my job and make my life, and I'll, I'm gonna eat just fine, right? See her divorce her when she's past her childbearing years. Remember that, that's part of people's value back then. 
what have I done to her? Just kind of left her out in the cold. Um, so this idea of expansion to include a more loving disposition and equitable disposition towards others. Right? But here's the challenge with this divorce one. Jesus says you can't do this. But the law says you can. So again, Jesus is going to start to rankle some. Because if you're a good follower of the faith, and you are trying to fully keep the law, and you wrote your wife the certificate of divorce whenever it happened, and then comes along this guy and says, guess what? You're living in sin, and now you're living in adultery, and your wife's an adulteress now too, and anyone that marries her is an adulteress. It's going to start to make some people mad. Right? So this question of, is, is, are those sorts of divorce sin, is not only something that still we deal with today, but is something that would have been dealt with um, very really for those people that were trying to keep the law that Jesus is in some ways preaching against now. Or at least telling them what? You're not as holy as you think you are. For us, let's examine this question, because this was the scripture that was used um, and at other points when Jesus teaches on divorce in the Gospels, to there was no Christian divorce, like I said, for like the first 1,900 years because of this. Is it a sin for two people to get divorced and let's say neither of them cheated on each other? They just made a mistake in getting married. Okay, that's what, well, that's kind of... So if you're Catholic, that's kind, of, that's kind of their outlet for it. They don't have divorce. Divorce is sinful, so but you can annul it, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of a shady practice. <laughs> anyway, I don't talk too much about that. But is divorce, is it sin? So what is sin? What what is sin? Separation. Good. That's part of it. Separation from God. Good. Another way, and actually the word for, for sin and sinning in, in the Greek in the New Testament is kind of just known as, it's missing the mark. Sort of like you're shooting an arrow and you just, you don't hit the bullseye, you're off. You miss the objective. So it's separation from God, leads to separation from God, sin separates us from God and others, and you could also throw in there all of creation. Okay. This is one of those, we put a lot of um, weight on this yes word, and we should, because we don't want to sin, and we don't want to participate in sin, and sin is bad. But we all do it. Yeah, that's part of Jesus' lesson before he's teaching this, in some ways. Yeah, you cannot murder someone, you shouldn't even get angry. You're just, you're just trying to keep the written law, but guess what? That's not good enough either. If your right hand is causing you to stumble, cut it off, which is ludicrous. And it's meant to sound, Jesus is not instructing people to pluck out their eyes and cut off their hands. It's meant to sound ludicrous to those who are hearing the teaching. But... It drives home this point, even within your natural being, because we are fallen, you're not going to fully keep the love of God, this fullness of the law. You can't do it. And that means you will participate in a fallen world. And if you participate in a fallen world, you have sin within and around you. Divorce, 
at least as Jesus puts it here, for no reason, for no adulterous reason, is it sin? Well, yeah. Because two people stood somewhere at some point and said, we're going to get married and we're going to be together forever. And that was their true intent at the time they did it, hopefully. That's where the annulment things come in. And they say, well, it wasn't really the person. But if they get divorced, what's happened? At the very minimum, the, the promise and pledge and the vow isn't being fulfilled. Does that make them awful people? No. No. It just means that like everyone, and like Jesus is beginning to start off with here in his teaching, we live in a world that's imperfect. Right? And sometimes what we do, because we still get concerned about our own righteousness through the law, which again, the law is not a bad thing. It's meant to guide us and direct us and to be a mirror for us. But sometimes what we do is we kind of circle around to just like people have always done, and just like they're doing in Jesus' day, figure out ways that things that aren't perfect we can call not sin. Because we don't like that word because it makes us feel bad. And, and again, that's part of the purpose of the law, but not entirely. Right? Because I sin every day. And so does someone else. And someone that gets divorced, no, that's part of the sin of their life doesn't make them awful or bad or anything like that, but it's it just reveals this brokenness. But what Jesus is trying to combat against is don't let's not set the bar lower just so we can feel better about ourselves. Because if you set the bar at an achievable level, what don't you need for salvation? Same. Yeah. You don't need Christ, you don't need God, really even. If you can just a lot of people talk about, oh, religion is nice, and you know, the point of religion is to make have people make you feel good and have people do good things. It's not, that's part of our relationship with God, but it's not it in total. Part of it is to realize that, ugh, things are not perfect. Things are broken. Things are sinful. And when you start to put that reality out there, as Jesus does here, guess what? People aren't going to like it because you're going to tell them things that will make them get their hair stood up on the back of their necks and get defensive. We don't want to be called sinners. You are. Or, or if you don't want to be a sinner, pluck out your eyes and cut off your hands. It's meant to sound, if you want a true answer to this, go lame and go mute and go live in a cave somewhere. You're still going to sin at some point because you're going to get angry over something. But it's going to be there. There's no way around it. So Jesus is driving home this lesson. All right. Let me see if we can finish up here with. Let's talk about Jesus teaching on, because he's still teaching here. The teachings just keep going. Um, let's talk about the craziest one. Can someone read chapter 5? It's the end, starting at 43 through 48. And this really sums it up all here at the end. You have heard that it was said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, 
What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even, do not even pagans do this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What a crazy crockpot idea. Love your enemies. What the heck is that? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's dumb. You know, you're enemy, they're trying to kill you. Pray for your persecutors. So, and and it, it's all kind of building to this, this portion of the teaching, I think. Because what's that line Jesus ends with here? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect. That is the level of righteousness required to save yourself and the world. All you have to do is be perfect. That's it. Much easier said than done. And, and this is one of those areas where humor is not the right word, but I th Jesus and in Jesus' time, look, they're, they're living in the, the real world. Humor and sarcasm and um, exaggeration exist. So I am, I am of the opinion Jesus is not actually telling his disciples to be perfect like God in heaven. They're going to realize how crazy that is. Now, it's not crazy in the idea of you should live as righteously as you can. But it ends with be perfect as God is perfect. And anyone that's ever lived a day of their life will realize that's not going to happen no matter how hard you try. So there's going to be this, this opening up of the law to, to really grow this message. So love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you, um, and be perfect as, as God is perfect, kind of sums up this fulfillment and this expansion of the law that Jesus has been teaching his disciples. And I can only imagine through all of this that their jaws are just <coughs> on the ground. <laughs> And they are staring at Jesus and each other. We, we've gotten so used to these teachings. Um, and that's a good thing, because it, it's our biblical knowledge. But we've gotten so used to these teachings, it doesn't even sound strange to us. This is, this is very different, what Jesus is starting to introduce and teach them about. And it would have it sounded that way to them. And in all of it, it does give this idea of you will not be perfect because the fullness of God's law and love is inachievable to us that are constrained by sin. One of the, one of the things about this too, there is indeed an allusion for Jesus to um, his own mission and ministry and the way, the way that God will be. And partly that's introduced here by this last part of the teaching. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what does God's perfection look like? And this is, so, this is all together here with this last bit we just heard. If we think about it that way, what does God's perfection look like? What are these final, not final because there's continued teaching, but here before that line, what are the admonitions for us? 
What is what is what is Jesus teaching in this portion that we just heard? Just right here. So before that line, what does Jesus tell people to do? Who are we to love? Our enemies. Love our enemies. Who are we to pray for? Our enemies. Even even more specifically, there's a line there. How, how does Jesus say it? Persecution. Pray for those who persecute you. Da 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 da. Therefore, be perfect. So this is the perfection of God. Right? Sort of. It's 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 the most nonsensical and almost ultimate thing that we can't do. Right here within this sort of final portion before Jesus gets to this idea. You are to be perfect with God, and by saying that, this is the perfection of God. What does this look like from God? When will we see that perfection of God? Jesus will demonstrate it. How? Specific to the life of Jesus. How will this, how will love of enemies and pray for the cross? That's what's going on at the cross. Right, you can love those, and no, and this is not negated, right? You love those that love you too. That's good, but guess what? That makes sense, and everyone can do that, and everyone should. Even the pagans do that, as he said. Love those who love you. Love your enemies too, and pray for those who persecute you. This love of those who love God, and this love of those who are the enemies of God is what Jesus is doing on the cross, where he even prays for who? What's the prayer of Jesus on the cross? Father, forgive them. That is a prayer for those who persecute you. Right? That is the perfection of God. You can and should emulate it, and the disciples of Jesus are called to be persecuted too and to rejoice at it, and they are called to take up their cross and follow him. But the perfect, the perfect is this through this. And they don't know that yet. But this idea is inseparable from the work of God on the cross. But yet in the Old Testament, God is making this promise, and then he's going to take it back. And he's argued with by Moses. Yep. And a does Abraham argue with him too? Uh, not, not as much. Abraham laughs a little bit when he questions how his wife, how Sarah and he are going to have kids. Well, but Abraham does... If there's only so many righteous people, so he does argue with God. He barters. Yeah, he, he negoti negotiates with God. Abraham negotiates with God. And God and God meets him halfway. But for um, in we know that God loves those who love God. And that, that's been made clear in the history of God so far that we have in Scripture. 
it's the big changes where it's going to be notable is this true love of enemies. The, the part of repairing the separation and the breach that's caused by sin is God extending over, not through condemnation and judgment, but over through love and an act of love to draw people back in. I, I don't like the, the ways in which sometimes people separate, you know, the quote-unquote Old Testament God and New Testament God. But the, the ways in which God redeems, or not redeems, repairs relationship with people in the Old Testament is different than the work of the cross. Now, whether that's to set up the work of the cross because, you know, God is there the whole time, you, you, you can go down the rabbit hole with those sorts of things. But, um, but this, is, this is distinctively different in the way that God is going to interact with the world. Because the, the, the perfection of God in some ways prior to the cross, um, you know, God was completely smiting, smiting some people too <laughs> previously. Um, but it's, it's changed to this fullness of love will be the thing. That's going to be the, the perfect of God. Why don't we close with prayer? The Lord be with you. Also with you. Lord, our Father, we thank you for this day and for your word. Continue to engage and inspire our hearts and minds so we might know our love for you and that so we might know your love for us. Father, bless us this day and remind us always of the word your Son has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.